What's going on? It's your boy Chuck G, and welcome to Three Deeper Cuts Podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist. Every week, we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formalin. Because without the high exposure to 10% buffer neutral formalin that I experienced during my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think about all the crazy things that I write about here at Three Deeper Cuts Publishing and the newsletter and what have you. And if you're not a pathologist and you're listening to this right now, thank you and welcome. Couple of announcements for today. Well, it's been another week. The cold spell is over in the D. It's back up to 70 degrees. All is, all is well. Making the rounds. Making the rounds on the, on the hospital grounds. Built on an ancient Indian burial ground. Let me tell you. The place I work, forget it. Uh, the diseases have been soiled in the mud. They've been marinating for thousands of years. And they come up through the soil, into the HVAC, into the piping, and they eventually wind up on my desk. Yes, sir. That's, that's what happens. It's been a good time. Uh, I live a monastic life like a uh, like a monk, a Rastaman. I, 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 I got to stop saying that. It's disrespectful to the Rastaman. I'm not, uh, I don't have dreadlocks. But the uh, bottom line is uh, I live a simple life. We don't have television here, uh, no commuting, no Karens, no excuses. Um, I maintain a simple fitness regimen based on power blocks and routine trips to the local gymnasium. It's a great gym. It's got a sauna. Pretty excited about that. The heat shock proteins. What else is going on? I'm aware at the cusp of World War III. Everyone kind of knows it. Uh, but there's nothing you can do about it. So you got to stay positive. And I try to keep the stuff on this podcast in some way useful to somebody in the trenches of community practice. I'm just trying to help the physician behind me, okay? I'm an early to mid-career attending, deep in the soiled trenches. All right, let's get on with it. So today, uh, I'm going to give you some excerpts from this great book. It's called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. H-O-U-S-E-L, Morgan Housel. And I'm picking the book because it talks about like some concepts of how to think about money, how to manage your money as a trainee, med student, resident, when you don't have a lot of money, and into your uh, life and practice. And, you know, doctors aren't necessarily wealthy people, but you have the potential to build wealth if you're smart with how you use your money. So... I just, I just picked some highlights from this book. Uh, again, it's called The Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel. Let's just flip. There's, just, there's a lot of bangers in this book, but I'm just going to read you the ones that really stuck with me. So here we go, page 71. 
This is a quote from Brad Pitt accepting a Screen Actors Guild Award. And he says, I've been banging away at this thing for 30 years. I think the simple math is some projects work and some don't. There's no reason to belabor either one. Just get on to the next act. And then he goes on to tell the story of Heinz Bergruen fleeing Nazi Germany. And uh, uh, he had a massive collection of art. Uh, so Bergen was, he, Bergruen was uh, one of the most successful art dealers of all time. And skip down to the mid of the page. He says, how could anyone have foreseen early in life what, what were to become the most sought after works of the century, works of art? You could say skill, you could say luck. And an investment firm, Horizon Research, has a third explanation and is very relevant to investors. The great investors bought vast quantities of art. The firm writes, a subset of the collections turned out to be great investments, and they were held for sufficiently long periods of time to allow the portfolio return to converge upon the return of the best elements in the portfolio. That's all that happens. The great art dealers operated like index funds. They bought everything they could, and they bought it in portfolios, not individual pieces they happened to like. Then they sat and waited for a few winners to emerge. That's all that happens. Let's skip down. That can be hard to deal with. So he's talking about like the tail ends, like the farthest ends of distribution and outcomes, um, like the big winners and the big losers, and... And so the next paragraph, he says, these, so basically the big gains in finance he's talking about, or in art dealing, they come from the ends of that spectrum. And he says, that can be hard to deal with, even if you understand the math. It's not intuitive that an investor can be wrong half the time, or an art dealer can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. It means we underestimate how normal it is for lots of, for a lot of things to fail, which causes us to overreact when they do. That's very powerful. So uh, basically the concept of this art dealer is that he, he was successful because he, he's successful because he ran it like an index fund. He just bought a lot of stuff. And the winners uh, basically outweighed the losers by a factor to where uh, uh, on the long run he did well. So then he goes into talking about um, uh, like Disney Studios and how basically like the big, uh, the, the first big break for Walt Disney uh, was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And when he came out with that in 1938, um, it earned $8 million in the first six months, which was un unheard of for uh, a movie of that era. And, um, and then it turned, uh, so he got an Oscar for it and then the Oscar turns Walt Disney into like this celebrity. And, uh, but the thing is he had already been in the game for decades. So by 1938, he had produced several hundred hours of film, but in business terms, the 83 minutes of Snow White were all that mattered. Anything that has huge, profitable, famous, or influential, that is huge, profitable, famous, or inf influential, is the result of a tail event, an outlying one in thousands or millions event. 
So, uh, and most of our attention goes to things that are huge, profitable, famous, or influential. When most of what we pay attention to is the result of a tale, it's easier to underestimate how rare and powerful they are. Um, so and then he goes, and so I learned something here because I don't have any experience in venture capital, but I didn't know this. So, uh, so take venture capital, he says. If a VC makes 50 investments, they likely expect half of them to fail and tend to do pretty well and one or two to be bonanzas bonanzas that drive 100% of the fund's returns. Investment firm Correlation Ventures once crunched the numbers. Out of more than 21,000 venture financings from 2004 to 2014, 65% lost money. That's insane. I can't imagine losing (laughs) that much. And I think in our line of work in medicine, we operate in a business where you can't have that level of L's. I mean, think about that. Like how many times, like you can't get the diagnosis wrong 65% of the time. Or if you're a pilot flying an airplane, you can't, you can't, (laughs) you can't fail to land the airplane 65% of the time. Um, But this is a different animal. Like he's making a distinction between professions and the profession of, investing and entrepreneurship. It's very different. And that's why I find this book so fascinating because he walks you through this story, but then he gives you, and he gives you all these interesting examples, but then he makes the point at the end is that uh, here's what you can take away from it and apply to your personal finances, not necessarily your day profession. Obviously you can't get, like I said, you can't get the diagnosis wrong. 60, 60, even one, one time is a big deal. Okay. Um, so take an example of one of these companies, Carol Co a former member of the Russell 3000 Index. It produced some of the biggest films of the 1980s and 1990s, including the first three Rambo films, Terminator 2, Basic Instinct, and Total Recall. Carol Co. went public in 1987. It was a huge success, churning out hit after hit. It did half a billion dollars in revenue in 1991, commanding a market cap of $400 million big money back then and especially for a film studio and then it failed this blows my mind these are like some of my favorite favorite movies from the 80s terminator 2 basic instinct total recall like legendary movies the blockbusters stopped a few big budget prov- projects flopped and by the mid 1990s carol co was history it went bankrupt in 1996 stock goes to zero have a nice day a catastrophic loss and one that four in 10 public companies experience over time. That's crazy. Carol Coe's story is not worth telling because it's unique, but because it's common. Here's the most important part of the story. The Russell 3000 has increased more than 73 fold since 1980. That is a spectacular return. That is success. Let me skip down ahead. In, so this is really interesting. In 2018, Amazon drove, the company Amazon drove six. 6% of the S&P 500's returns. And Amazon's growth was almost entirely due to Prime and Amazon Web Services, which are itself which itself are tail events in a company that has experimented with hundreds of products from the Fire Phone to travel agencies. Apple was responsible for almost 7% of the index's returns in 2018. That's so wild. Um so let's skip ahead. Uh, 
Okay, so um, so basically, he's making this point that these so these investors and these companies, when they're starting new projects, they take a lot of bets, but it's the tails of the bell curve that drive the results. And so the next page, he says, when you accept that tails drive everything in business, investing, and finance, you realize that it's normal for a lot of things to go wrong, break, fail, and fall. Um, And so skip down ahead. This is where the practical advice is coming. He says, if you're a good worker, you'll find the right company in the right field after several attempts and trials. That I put a star next to, and that really resonated with me. There are fields where you must be perfect every time. Flying a plane, for example. Then uh, there are fields where you want to be at least pretty good near the time, like a restaurant chef, for example. Investing, business, and finance are just not like these fields. That's like the most important point of the book because I think that puts a lot of things in context for the working physician in community practice who's just trying to like manage their finances appropriately. And uh, I think that's why business and finance just doesn't come as naturally to people who have spent most of their career in medicine because you're not used to viewing failure as part of the, um, as part of like daily work. Like failure to a doctor is like uh, somebody dies or missing a major milestone. Like let's say you fail one, uh, you fail a licensing exam or you, you fail to get into med school in the first place. Like these are things that, are major hits to your life, but in the big scheme of things, they're, they're not that big of a deal. It's just that it involves your whole life at the time. So if you, uh, if you don't get into med school on the first try, it's just like, okay, whatever. Then you get another, another shot the next year. You take a job and research or do something, publish a few papers, and, then, and that's it. So, uh, okay, take Amazon. It's not... It's not intuitive to think that a failed product launch at a major company would be normal and fine. Intuitively, you think the CEO should apologize to shareholders. But CEO Jeff Bezos said shortly after the disastrous launch of the company's Fire Phone, if you think that's a big failure, we're working on much bigger failures right now. I am not kidding. Some of them are going to make the Fire Phone look like a tiny little blip. Can you imagine if a hospital administrator said something like that, right? Because again, failures in medicine mean death. They mean fraud, waste, abuse, uh, getting the wrong vendor, right? So, but I was curious when I read this, I was wondering to myself, like, how far ahead would medicine be if we had leadership like that? You know, that was okay to risk failure. And I don't know if that type of leadership would ever even be possible, like in this field where you're, you're dealing with literally people's lives on a moment-to-moment basis. Like if the, if the Amazon Fire Phone is a failure, nobody dies. Maybe a few people get laid off, and I'm not trying to trivialize that, but it's not like a moment-to-moment life-or-death decision. So, and the same thing with pilots, military commanders, whatnot. So, yeah, so that was the end of that chapter. I'll skip over the... Uh, uh, yeah, so he makes a few more points. Next section is freedom. And so this is where I think people get a little, um, people think get, get a little bit carried away 
in um, in this generation, right? Because right now, it's very popular to just say that you earn all your money on the internet and you kind of make your own schedule. You can you know, work from anywhere in the world and this and that. Uh, and, and that's great. Uh, but the, the reality is that very few people can actually pull that off because very few people have a product or a service that is really that life-changing that they can command a high enough fee to make that possible. Um, and possible to raise a family on those fees. Like anyone can move to Costa Rica, you know, and I don't know, you start up some bullshit snake oil service or coaching service and, you know, like your monthly expenses are like $500 a month or something. So like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ability to raise a family uh, and like live a comfortable life. It's unlikely that you'll be able to do that uh, outside getting like a, a formal day job, at least for a point in time, unless, unless you have like a trust fund or like family to live off of. It's just, it's not going to, it's not going to happen unless you start really early in life. And like, that's what I think the message in this book is, is that, um, okay, so let me just get into it. The highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. People want to become wealthier to make them happier. Happiness is a complicated subject because everyone's different. But if there's a common denominator in happiness, a universal fuel of joy, it's that people want to control their lives. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want, is priceless. It is the highest dividend money pays. So this is like, um, I'm going to skip the first story where he talks about some psychologists and stuff, but the point he's making is that like, how does this apply to you? You have to start viewing money as time. So for example, if you want to take a gap year or something like in your residency, like you can't do that unless you have like money to like saved up or like later in your career, if you want some flexibility um, to maybe take a job that pays less but gives you more free times, or I don't know, maybe you like to surf. Like, you might only be able to find that opportunity through networking. And uh, if you are burdened with debt from consumer spending, or maybe you bought a house that you can barely afford, you're not going to have the ability to just pivot on a dime. But if you had spent the preceding five years saving, like a cash cushion of like, one to two years worth of expenses, then you can afford to uh, jump at those opportunities uh, that pop up in life. And that's one thing that I think the formal schooling, pro, you know, uh, the formal schooling system in this country, it doesn't address that. And that's why as a parent, you have to kind of coach your child that that's how you should view money. Because we see this in medicine all the time, right? Like people their health starts to suffer. And it, it's, it's not usually not because, okay, there's some people that are just straight up lazy, but a lot of people develop these vices because they hate what they do, right? Or they, they're neutral about what they do, but you know they got caught up in keeping up with the Joneses and now they have a big house in the suburbs and they have to commute two hours a day just to get to work. And that affects their health. And now they're obese, diabetic, 
Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So let me skip ahead. Money's greatest intrinsic value, and this can't be overstated, is its ability to give you control over your time, to obtain, bit by bit, a level of independence and autonomy that comes from unspent assets that give you greater control over what you can do and when you can do it. A small amount of wealth means the ability to take a few days off work when you're sick without breaking the bank. Gaining that ability is huge if you don't have it. A bit more means waiting for a good job to come around after you get laid off rather than having to take the first one you find. That can be life-changing. Six months emergency expenses means not being terrified of your boss because you know you won't be ruined if you have to take some time off to find a new job. More still means the ability to take a job with lower pay but flexible hours. Maybe one with a shorter commute or being able to deal with a medical emergency without the added burden of worrying about how you'll pay for it. Uh, I can't stress this enough, especially for graduating physicians who have student loans. I think, first of all, if you're going to go into medicine, you should try to find a way to not have any student loans. So try to find a way to like be born into a rich family. I'm just kidding. Uh, But just join the military is what I'm saying. Uh, because that will get your student loans paid for. You'll get some cool experiences. You'll, you'll learn some leadership. And um, you might even stay in for career. But I'm like, I'm like the poster child for military, you know, uh, as opposed to being owned by a bank. I would much rather be owned by the United States government for four years, five years, however long it takes, and just rack up some work experience and come out of there with zero debt because what that also does is, is it gives you a lot of self-awareness and perspective about what you actually want in life. So that, that's, the, that's the beauty of like, you know, four years is a long time, but it's also not a long, a long, not a long time. Because when you come out of that is that you understand what it's like to have all of your freedoms taken away from you. And then so you're better able to make decisions later on in life about how to use your time. So, I mean, for me, I had other opportunities that I could have taken, but I took the job in private practice that gave me the most amount of flexibility. So I have days during the week where I don't really have to show up till like nine or 10 in the morning, you know, and it's by design, right? Like it's, it's like, it's just the way the schedule is set up. And then there's other, uh, you know, there's other perks, right? Like there's, so those, those types of things, I, I could have made more money you know, taking a different job. But if I had taken a, a different job, and a, lo- a lot of private practice jobs are like this, you get sent out to a hospital and you're the only one there, right? So you are covering like a 300-bed hospital alone, and that requires you to be on duty all the time. Like you have to be there at 8 a.m. or 7.30 in the morning every single day. Like there's no, not, you can't, you can't take an easy day and, you know, have pancakes with your kids or a coffee with your wife. None of that. It's like every single day is like that. And when I was in the military, there'd be days where I would just be like, yo, I just don't want to go into work right now. Can I just, can I get like a couple hours just to have some coffee? It's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't work like that. No, they own you. And if you show up even a moment late, like you can, you better prepare for the wrath because it's coming. Um, and so anyways, I, this is, this is how I did it, you know? So I'm in a position where I don't want to change my job for this reason. Um, but at the end of the day, 
like, I know what it's like to have your back up against a wall and kind of feel trapped professionally. And so I absolutely am living way below my means right now and saving up, uh, you know, potentially like an emergency cushion, you know? And I, again, I don't foresee leaving, but um, anyways, let's keep going. Uh, the hardest thing about doing... Okay, so he's talking about like he took this job as an investment banker, as a summer analyst in Los Angeles. And this resonated with me because this is one of my first jobs. Uh, I too took a summer analyst job at an investment bank in India for a summer. And he says the hardest thing about this... So he says it was a four-month internship, and he lasted only a month before he bailed. And he says, the hardest thing about this was that I loved the work, and I wanted to work hard, but doing something you love on a schedule you can't control can feel the same as doing something you hate. There is a name for this feeling. Psychologists call it reactance. And I put a star next to that because I know that everybody listening to this podcast has felt that at some point or another. The term is reactance. Reactance. That's when you like the work, but you hate not being able to do it on your own time or on a more relaxed schedule. And I guess in medicine, that's the difference between being a resident or a fellow versus being an attending. Maybe it's different in clinical medicine because you, you, ha- you still have to show up at a certain time to clinic. Um, but in pathology, it's definitely more laid back, right? Like, I mean, unless, unless there's really no emergency unless you're covering a frozen uh, and even that too, it, uh, like you're not the one holding the knife. You just have to be around. So um, I think that level of reactance uh, goes down in this branch of medicine by the time you're in community practice, assuming that you are in a group where you have multiple, multiple people sharing the load of uh, on-call services. Uh, and if you can do that, I, I don't know how you make a better schedule than that. Like just generally in medicine, other than being maybe like a part-time dermatologist or a part-time plastic surgeon, I don't know how you get that life. Um, so what I'm telling you is if you're a med student, you're listening to this, you should go into pathology because it's the bomb. Uh, is, that's basically what I'm saying. Uh, Let's keep going. Uh, The United States is the richest nation in the history of the world, but there is little evidence that its citizens are, on average, happier today than they were in the 1950s when wealth and income were much lower, even at the median level and adjusted for inflation. A 2019 Gallup poll of 150,000 people in 140 countries found that 45% of Americans said they felt a lot of worry the previous day. The global average was 39%. 55% of Americans said they felt a lot of stress the previous day. For the rest of the world, 35% said the same. That's crazy. Uh, so 45% of Americans felt a lot of worry. That's insane, dude. I honestly don't feel that much worry in my life. I can't say that about my life 10 years ago, but... Um, but I think that's a problem. And I have seen numerous people along the way complicate their lives even further by living beyond their means and by trying to keep up with the Joneses. And doctors do this really badly. Uh, and I would urge you, um, before you get too settled into whatever job you're at right now, 
uh, you should you should just like live way below your means and and build like a safety cushion uh, unless you absolutely never see yourself leaving. But I, I find that to be unlikely. I mean, it's it's, it's very unlikely that you'll stay in your first job forever. Um, it's possible, but it's unusual. All right, skip ahead. John D. Rockefeller was one of the most successful businessmen of all time. He was also a recluse, spending most of his time by himself. He rarely spoke, deliberately making himself inaccessible and staying quiet when you caught quiet when he caught his attention. A refinery worker who occasionally let Rockefeller's ear had Rockefeller's ear once remarked, "He lets everybody else talk while he sits back and says nothing." And I love this. So basically, somebody asked Rockefeller, "It's like, yo, man, why ain't you talk?" And he read him this poem. <laughs> he says, a wise old owl lived in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why aren't we all like that wise old bird? I love that poem. Uh, you can just snip that. I, I, I shouldn't have told anybody. I should have kept that to myself. That's such a gold nugget right there. Uh, this podcast is actually the most that I talk, dude. Um, this is kind of like my... I hope I provide value, but it's also a bit of a release for me because uh, I don't have the time to do open mics right now. Um, but gosh, that is powerful advice. Uh, I definitely learned that the hard way over the course of my 20s. But uh, yeah, Rockefeller was, he says, Rockefeller was a strange guy, but he figured out something that now applies to tens of millions of workers. So the next couple of paragraphs, he talks about how like Rockefeller's job wasn't to do blue collar work. His job was basically to make decisions all day. And so uh, he was constantly thinking through problems like business problems and operations problems throughout the day. So uh, like he took that, that thinking time very seriously and he just didn't talk very much. Um, but yeah, that's how can you apply that to yourself? Like in residency and fellowship, Gosh, man, like just keep your mouth shut. That's what I'm saying. Especially in like hierarchical departments. Bro, lay low. Let your actions speak louder than your words. That's the key in training. Outwork everybody in the room and say nothing. Say nothing. Because I would say at least 80% of the people, like your co-residents, they're craving for adulation. Okay, but words are cheap. Praise is cheap. What really is a boss move is to just outwork everyone, do more work, produce more results than everyone else, take more call, and say nothing. That's how you become a fucking G. All right, anyway, I'm getting a little too hyped up. Um, next page. Uh, compared to generations prior, control over your time has diminished. And since controlling your time is such a key happiness influencer, we shouldn't be surprised that people don't feel much happier, even though we are on average richer than ever. Isn't that the truth? So I think this also, so I, I knew an anesthesiologist, uh, I'm not going to say the city, but so this guy was definitely pulling in like easy seven to 800 K a year, single, no kids, and uh, uh, he he had zero free time. 
So when he was on, he was on. The only so he got good vacation, but it was a different life. And I think if you're going into that line of work, you, you definitely have to be wired for it and you have to mentally prepare yourself for it. So when you're on service and every single day out of the week is a fourteen to sixteen hour day, uh or a twelve to sixteen hour day, whatever, um, I think that is something that not a lot of people could handle long term. He obviously can, but again, he's single and doesn't have kids. So, I mean, what is the benefit in me having, you know, a lighter job, at least when we're all, when we're fully staffed? Well, it's that I can, I get to consistently come home and spend time with my kid and my wife, you know, so that balances me out. And again, it's consistently, right? So it's not one of those things where I only see my son on Friday nights or on Saturdays like one day a week. It's like, no, no, I literally get to see him and talk to him and play with him for at least an hour every single night. Uh, and I also get my exercise in almost every day. So like that, that didn't just happen. Like it, it, it took, it took planning, but this point he's making about Americans being richer, but not being any happier. I've seen that unfold a lot of the time, uh, in medicine and in some of my corporate friends, so you really have to be intentional about how you're structuring your, uh, your work situation. Uh, the, the caveat to that is that I would never go into a job interview and immediately start asking about work-life balance. Uh, I mean, they'll just laugh you out of the room because ultimately you do have to pay your dues. There, there, even in my practice, there's definitely some rougher months. You know, there are some months where, you know, or weeks at a stretch where I'm pulling 12-hour days, and that's fine because I know it kind of balances out the rest of the year. Anyways, so, and then he goes in talking about people. So there's a study where they interviewed a bunch of people. It's called 30 Lessons for Living. Gerontologist Carl Pillimer interviewed thousands of old people looking for their most (laughs) important lessons. And he says, uh, not one single person out of a thousand said that you should try to work really hard and make a lot of money. Not a single person said you should try to be as wealthy as the people around you. Not a single person said that you should work based upon your desired future earning power. Uh, What they did value were things like quality friendships, being part of something bigger than themselves, and spending quality, unstructured time with their children. Your kids don't want your money or what your money buys anywhere near as much as they want you. Specifically, they want you with them, Pillimer writes. So, uh, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, okay. Man in the car paradox. Let's skip ahead. This is, okay. This is, this is a great story. Uh, so he's talking about parking Ferraris as a, as a valet. And he says the irony is that he never looked at the drivers. He only looked at the cars. So when you see a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini Rolls Royce, when you, when you see it drive by, you think, wow, if I had that car, people would think I'm cool. And he says, there's a paradox here. People tend to want wealth to signal to others that they should be liked and admired. But in reality, those other people often, um, those other people often bypass admiring you, not because they don't think wealth is admirable, but because they use your wealth as a benchmark for their own desire to be liked and admired. 
skip ahead uh yeah so he he writes his son a letter saying you might think that you want an expensive car a fancy watch and a huge house but i'm telling you you don't what you want is respect and admiration from other people and you think having expensive stuff will bring it it almost never does especially from the people you want to respect and admire you so uh uh that's that's really powerful and uh uh Again, this is not, look, I'm not trying to tell you how to spend your money. I'm just telling you like how I applied these principles uh, to my life. And uh, look, I, I obviously could have bought a new car as soon as I got my job. I could have bought a, I could have bought a really nice car. But what's more important to me is like the psychological peace of mind uh, to be able to have freedom to pivot and uh that's that's how i view wealth uh and uh, i know a lot of people that make a lot of money that are basically trapped in their lives and a lot of these people are doctors unfortunately they get caught up they want to have the prestigious neighborhood they want to send their kids to the prestigious school right they want to they want to look the part so they got to they got to buy the fancy car they got to have the big house with the pool and all this other stuff, man. They, they want to go on these fancy vacations. They want the timeshares. They do all this stuff. And that's great, man, if you can truly afford it. But most of these people, look, man, like a few hundred thousand a year, which is what a lot of doctors make, that's, that's not that much money in the big, big scheme of things. You know what I'm saying? Like that's basically like blue collar, in the more expensive parts of the world. You may think it's a lot of money if you live in like Oklahoma or some random ass rural town, but it's really not. And so you need to be, if you really want that psychological freedom to pivot and to not uh, have to agree to things that get passed down from administration, uh, then it, the way out of that is to live below your means for a significant amount of time. And I'm not saying you don't have to live comfortably. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you shouldn't copy all the other people uh, that are upgrading their lifestyle as their income goes up. That's the key. That is the key. Don't upgrade your lifestyle. Uh, Okay, humility, kindness, and empathy will bring you more respect than horsepower ever will. We're not talking about Ferraris. Another story. We're not done talking about Ferraris. Okay, whatever. So, yeah, that line right there. um, If respect and admiration are your goal, be careful how you seek it. Humility, kindness, and empathy will bring you more respect than horsepower ever will. That's so powerful, man. That is so powerful. Man, I've I spent money on so much dumb shit in my twenties, and I paid the consequences. Um, I just I would not recommend it. Of course, I never really spent money for like status or admiration. I spent it on just like knucklehead type of things, like motorcycles and whatever dirt bikes. <laughs> uh, what else? Bicycles, expensive road bikes. I spent entirely way too much money on road bikes. Only, to, only to not have any. Only to give up on bike riding, which, by the way, is pretty dangerous in any major city. I would not recommend uh, riding bikes uh, in most major American cities. Super dangerous. Uh, 
Uh, okay. Let's skip ahead and we're going to kind of wind things down. I have a lot more highlights that I'm probably not going to get to, but uh, this this last one's good enough. Um, so money has many ironies. Here's an important one. Wealth is what you don't see. Uh, so let's just skip down to, we tend to judge wealth by what we see because that's the information we have in front of us. We can't see people's bank accounts or their brokerage statements. So we rely on outward appearances to gauge financial success, cars, homes, Instagram photos. Modern capitalism makes helping people fake it until they make it a cherished industry. But the truth is, well, the, that wealth is, the, the truth is that wealth is what you don't see. Wealth is the nice cars not purchased, the diamonds not bought, the watches not worn, the clothes not foregone, and the first class upgrade declined. Wealth is financial assets that haven't yet been converted into the stuff you see. It is excellent advice. So <laughs> they use an example of the singer Rihanna and, you know, she like overspent her bank account and her financial advisor says, was it really necessary to tell her that if you spend money on things, you will end up with the things and not the money? Uh, I think she sued the financial advisor for letting her overspend. Uh, it's a, such a millennial thing to do, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like there's so then he says investor and Bill Mann, he says that there's no faster way to feel rich than to spend lots of money on really nice things. But the way to be rich is to spend money, spend money you have and not to spend money you don't have. It's really that simple. Um the only way to be wealthy is to not spend the money that you actually do have. Gosh, isn't that the truth? So uh, and again, in in this line of work, I don't know a lot of it, I don't know a lot of physicians who have been able to discipline themselves uh, to that. A lot of people catch up, you know, later in life. But I think this, the sample size of the catch-up population is a bit skewed, right? Because you look at, I can just speak to pathologists, right? Pathologists who are now at the end of their career, they practice during the heyday of private practice, which was like the 80s and 90s. 70s, 80s, and 90s, and early 2000s. So now it's, can you believe it's 2024? So reimbursement has gotten down, right? So physicians aren't making as much money as they used to. And the future is kind of uncertain. We're always going to do all right. But those $800,000 salaries, like they're they're not really, you're not going to come by them that often. Or 1.5 million, whatever, uh, it would probably be less in the eighties, but you know, average or translated via t- translated from purchasing power, like doctors in the eighties in private practice did very, very well. I mean, they were basically like the pinnacle of the community, but now, you know, like a lot of physician groups have sold out either to private equity or to hospital systems. And they're basically just going to cut your salary in half. They're going to pay you the bare minimum of what it takes to not get you to leave. And they don't care anything about quality. Like, you know, so like somebody running a private practice, quality is everything. Reputation is everything. Whereas a big healthcare system, they really don't, I mean, they preach, they talk a good talk, but they really are not incentivized um, to promote quality. Um, 
promote their individual brand. Really what it is is that every, everyone becomes replaceable because you're, you don't own, you as the doctor don't own the practice, right? So you would just, once you're employed, it's kind of like there's not really any incentive to go the extra mile um, unless you're climbing an academic totem pole. And even in that case, there's, there's really no benefit to going the extra mile per se uh, because you're playing a different game. Like in the academic game, it's all about putting out high impact factor uh, publications. That's what really matters. Uh, not like, you know, um, not all the other soft skills that you need in private practice. So the day I'm, this, I'm going to finish this up here. The danger here is that I think most people deep down want to be wealthy. They want freedom and flexibility, which is what financial assets not yet spent can give you. But it is so ingrained in us that to have money is to spend money that we don't get to see the restraint that it actually takes to be wealthy. And since we can't see it, it's hard to learn about it. People are good at learning by imitation, but the hidden nature of wealth makes it hard to imitate others and learn from their ways. After he died, Ronald Reed became many people's financial... Okay, let's delete that part. Imagine how hard it would be to learn how to write if you couldn't read the works of great authors. Who would be your inspiration? Who would, be, who would you admire? What nuanced tricks would you follow? The world is filled with people who look modest but are actually wealthy, and people who look rich, who live at the razor's edge... And people who look rich and who live at the razor's edge of insolvency. Keep this in mind when quickly judging others' success and setting your own goals. That is so powerful, man. So um, if you really want to be wealthy as a community practice doc, there's really no other way other than checking your ego and not getting caught up in other people's pursuits and you'll see it you'll see it happening around you but trust me behind the scenes a lot of physicians are living by the seat of their pants and when when and so here's how this applies to you you might be in a situation where things are just hunky-dory with your private practice but then there's a change in leadership okay or what if and then what if that leadership sells to private equity? What if, what if that leadership is not, a, not good at negotiating with the administration? Or what if the administration wants to buy out your practice? Now you have new leadership, and now you're not getting paid as much, and you have to play by their rules, which you might not like, and that might cut into your quality of life. So if you've already bought a million-dollar house and you've bought two Teslas, um, you might look outwardly wealthy to other people, but it's not true because behind the scenes, you know, you're, you're not saving a lot out of your monthly expenses, you know, because you're paying, you're spending it all on your expensive mortgage and your car payments uh, and whatever other, uh, expensive hobbies or habits that you've developed. But if you've checked your ego from day one, and you've lived below your means and you have like this giant cash cushion saved up, then if the hammer drops and your leadership changes, you can walk away or you can, neg- you can better negotiate the terms of the, di- the deal because ultimately the ability to walk away is foundational for 
a successful negotiation. So there you go. I just wanted to share with you today excerpts from this book, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. This is intended to be tactical advice for the med student, the resident, the early career physician who is trying to get ahead and try to get the most happiness they can out of life and set themselves up long-term for, um, for financial freedom. So there you go. Just, I guess just to recap is just change the way you view money, view money as potential, uh, to manage your own time. Um, don't get trapped in using money to signal. Don't get trapped in keeping up with the Joneses. And and remember that you're not a spreadsheet. Like you're a person. You're an emotional person. So like your budget can be very perfect on paper, but if it's not conducive to what you really want out of life, then uh, you're going to unconsciously just resist that budget and you're just going to keep pushing up against it. So in my, in my scenario, uh, there's certain things that I like to spend money on. There's other things that I really don't like spending money on. So at this particular juncture in my house or or in my life, I just did not buy a house right away, uh, because that's just not important to me. Instead, what was more important to me was, uh, family time, low commute time and physical fitness and the, and the time to write and make podcasts, which is, I enjoy doing this. So I spared no expense, you know, like it, I didn't like hesitate to buy podcasting equipment and microphones because it's what I like to do. All right. So there you go. Uh, that's all for today's episode of the three deeper cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist, bringing you high signal content fueled by 10% buffered neutral formalin. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this content, subscribe to the, uh, what am I going to call this? Is a newsletter cringe? Whatever. It's a newsletter. It's an audio newsletter. You're going to love it. Uh, so check out chuckgmd.substack.com. Check out chuckgmd.gumroad.com for some free downloads. You're going to enjoy those too. Uh, some tactics and strategies to, uh, to get through the trenches of medicine, especially in your training years. And I just share with you everything that I've learned along the way. All the in-between street knowledge that nobody talks about. Nobody talks about. But you're going to hear it here. So until next time, be well and stay curious. Chuck G signing off. Talk to you later. Bye.